2006, Friday, January 27th. Today will be Lecture 17, The Evolution of High-Mass Stars, beginning in just a moment. Up, and we go. Now, yesterday, we looked at what happens to a star after it runs out of hydrogen and begins to go through a series of evolutionary changes as it tries to regain a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. And we began with low-mass stars, which we defined as less than four times the mass of the sun, which means what I described yesterday, the stages through hydrogen exhaustion, formation of an inert helium core, the steady contraction of that inert helium core, and pushing of the hydrogen fusion out into an envelope. It hastens the red giant phase. At the top of the red giant branch, the core got hot enough, about 100 million degrees Kelvin, for helium fusion to ignite in that inert core. And with a newfound source of energy, the star was actually able to regain its former state of thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. But now it did so as a hotter, bluer star, blue, hotter, bluer, and more luminous star called a horizontal branch star. Didn't go back to the main sequence because it's not getting hydrogen using hydrogen fusion as its energy source. It very quickly runs through its helium fuel because the helium is very efficient as its energy source. It runs out in 100 million years. After it begins to run out, the carbon-oxygen material that is the result, the byproduct of helium fusion, builds up as an ash in the core. That carbon-oxygen core begins to collapse, and the star reascends the giant branch. Although now it's different because it's got a carbon-oxygen core with a double burning shell, a hydrogen burning shell outside of a helium burning shell. It's going to now ascend the giant branch a little bit to hotter temperatures and therefore bluer energies. And we therefore call it the asymptotic giant branch. When it gets to the top of the asymptotic giant branch, the core is still not hot enough to ignite the next version of fusion, carbon fusion. And before it gets there, the star becomes unstable because of the extreme temperature sensitivity of the helium shell. Those instabilities drive thermal pulses into the envelope, which drive the envelope off. The core and the envelope, which have been together since formation, separate. The envelope puffs off into space, spending a very brief, maybe 10,000-year period, lit up as a planetary nebula before it just vanishes like a smoke ring. And the core, the carbon-oxygen core, continues to collapse, but it no longer heats up as much as it would. And eventually, the core becomes degenerate. Electron degeneracy pressure kicks in. This pressure now is enough to stop the collapse due to gravity. It reachieves hydrostatic equilibrium, but it no longer has a temperature source. It no longer has a heat source. And so it settles down as a small, very hot, but very, very faint collapsed object we call a white dwarf. Now we'll talk in more detail about white dwarfs next week when we talk in specifics about stellar remnants. This is what happens to a four solar mass star or less. It's what's going to happen to the sun in roughly five to six billion years when it runs out of hydrogen in its core. But today I want to go on to the rest of the main, up main sequence, what happens to more massive stars. Their evolution, as we're going to see today, is a very different story altogether. The key ideas today is to introduce what I mean by a high mass star. I'm really going to mean O and B stars. I'm going to mean the hottest stars in the main sequence. And these are going to have be stars with masses in excess of four times the mass of the sun, all the way up to whatever the maximum mass limit is for stars. Now, they're all going to go through a main sequence phase, just like regular stars. But remember that the lifetime on the main sequence is very strongly dependent on mass and is very short-lived the more massive you are. So they'll have a very short main sequence lifetime. They will run out of hydrogen. After the hydrogen runs out, the fun begins. 
They go through not a red giant phase, but a red supergiant phase. Their evolution is notably different in the outward appearance in that they'll evolve essentially horizontally across the HR diagram into the supergiant branch. They'll get to the end of the red supergiant phase and we'll see the ignition of helium burning, exactly in many ways recapitulating what we just saw in the low mass stars. Carbon burning, it will then form a carbon-oxygen core. That carbon-oxygen core will collapse, and it will, this time, get hot enough for carbon burning to ignite if the mass is above four times the mass of the sun. That's where that dividing line really comes from for four solar masses, is whether or not you can ignite carbon fusion in your core. If the star gets, is four to eight times the mass of the sun, it will never get past carbon burning. It will never be able to do this trick again of finding a new nuclear fuel. But if the mass is above eight times the mass of the sun, there actually are additional nuclear fuels that can tap successively as each of the different ash cores begin to collapse. We're going to see neon, oxygen, and finally silicon burning. These are different fusion reactions, each successively less and less efficient. This whole process is going to end with the formation of an iron core. That's the end product of silicon burning, is the production of a large quantity of iron. So we're going to follow the series of steps through to the final evolutionary state. Now, let's begin. High mass stars in this definition are going to be stars with a mass in excess of about four times the mass of the sun. These are O and B stars. The mass, the time you spend on the main sequence burning hydrogen is roughly proportional to one over the mass cubed. The higher mass you are, the less time you live on the main sequence. These are the biggest hottest, brightest stars on the main sequence. That means they burn hot, live fast, and die young. These are the rock stars in the main sequence. They burn out real quick. They have an immense amount of hydrogen fuel in their cores, but their luminosity needs are tremendous. Remember that luminosity on the main sequence scales like mass to the fourth power. So a star with 10 times the mass of the sun has 10,000 times the luminosity requirements of the sun, and its available fuel is equal to the entire mass of the sun and it will burn through that fuel in 10 million years, where it takes the sun 10 billion years to burn through one-tenth of that. O and B stars are fairly rare. We don't see very many of them in the sky because it's very hard to form big mass stars to start with, and when they do form, they don't live for very long on the main sequence. That's why they're so rare in the sky. They're very rare in general, and they live real fast, which means we've got to catch them just right. Now, the main sequence phase of these stars, these are upper main sequence stars, so therefore their primary for form of fusion in their core is going to be the CNO cycle. They're going to burn hydrogen into helium. They're going to slowly convert their hydrogen into helium until all the hydrogen is exhausted. The helium core, just like in the low mass stars, begins to build up size. This helium core will be quite large. It will almost be the size of the sun in the more massive stars. So you've got almost a full solar mass, a little bit less, of helium building up deep inside the cores of these very hot stars. Because these stars have such tremendous luminosity requirements, they burn through their fuel at an absolutely prodigious rate. They burn through it in roughly 10 million years. So after 10 million years, hydrogen core exhaustion will occur, and the star will now have to leave the main sequence. It will no longer be able to maintain a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. It's going to have to evolve. After core hydrogen is exhausted, the helium core, which has been building up, is slowly getting more and more massive. As it grows massive enough, eventually its self-gravity becomes greater than its internal pressure, and it loses hydrostatic equilibrium. It starts to collapse in upon itself. 
At this point, the core is still too cool for helium fusion to occur, and so it doesn't get any extra heat, and so it begins this Kelvin-Helmholtz contraction. Now, the hydrogen burning, just like we saw in the low-mass stars, gets shouldered out into a shell surrounding this inert, collapsing hydrogen helium core. As the helium core collapses, it begins to compress its surroundings. As the com surroundings compress, the temperature goes up. It generates a lot of extra heat. That heat causes the hydrogen fusion in the shell to run faster. As a consequence, the star now is out of thermal equilibrium as well. It's producing much more energy than it can radiate away. That additional energy is shoved out into the envelope and causes it to begin to swell up. Basically, the energy is being turned into work. In this case, we're starting with a star that already was big and puffy, a 10 solar mass, 20 solar mass star. It's kind of big and fluffy already because it's so hot, because something called radiation pressures turns out to be important on the inside, and their radius is bigger than a proportionally sized lower mass star. And so the envelope really puffs up. The evolution occurs at nearly constant luminosity. So if it's going to be producing the same amount of luminosity, but its temperature is dropping as the shell expands and cools, that means that shell is going to have to get very big indeed to keep that luminosity up. In the case of a red supergiant, the star can swell up so it can actually fill the orbit of Jupiter in some cases when it becomes an M supergiant. Now these things will move horizontally, flat, across the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram at nearly constant luminosity. And they're going to do so really fast. Remember that in the case of a sun-like star, you spend 10 billion years on the main sequence, and then take a billion years to climb the giant branch. That one-tenth rule roughly corresponds again to what occurs inside of a giant star, because it's still the same Kelvin-Helmholtz contraction mechanism, although now the star is a lot bigger, so it's going to be a lot faster where it spends 10 million years in round numbers on the, H, on the main sequence, it's now going to take 1 million years to traverse the HR diagram. So in general, we're going to just barely be able to catch these things as they go running across. Supergiants are going to be very rare stars because they move really fast. From this point out, I can stop using the word million years because the evolution is going to proceed very, very rapidly. So here's the HR diagram, again, our roadmap for how stellar evolution works. We're going to start with a high-mass star way up here at the upper OB star section of the main sequence. It runs out of hydrogen, and it zips across the HR diagram, decreasing in its temperature at nearly constant luminosity. That means from the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship, it's going to have to physically grow in radius in order to keep up with its luminosity. And it just puffs up into a very huge, very puffy star we call a red supergiant. If I carved one of these things open, what I would find, very definitely not to scale, is an inert helium core, roughly the mass of the sun, for a 10 solar mass or bigger star, surrounded by a very thin hydrogen-burning shell. The collapse of this core is providing Kelvin-Helmholtz heat, which is driving more and more of the fusion in the hydrogen-burning shell around it. The excess energy is being puffed into a cool, very, very extended envelope. This is very much not to scale. This envelope would be so much larger. This core here is a fraction of the size of the sun. The outer edge of the envelope is out by Jupiter. So this is, there's no way I could draw this to scale. The real core would be a couple of pixels across on this picture. So the star begins to swell up into a red supergiant star. It looks superficially like what we saw in a low-mass star. And that resemblance is now going to get less and less as we go through the additional phases. 
The core temperature begins to climb, and it climbs up to about 170 million degrees Kelvin. It actually runs through 100 million Kelvin, which was necessary to ignite helium fusion in a lower mass star. In these cases, it will ignite helium fusion at a slightly higher temperature. The triple alpha process begins, kicks into play. Two helium combine to form a beryllium, for plus a little bit of energy, because beryllium weighs less than two helium together. The helium picks up a beryllium, forming carbon-12. Carbon-12 weighs less than the combined weight of beryllium and helium, and it releases a bit of energy itself. That carbon sitting there is now susceptible to being receiving a helium, fusing with it, and forming oxygen. Again, oxygen weighs less than carbon and helium combined, and you get more energy out of the process. The end point of triple alpha is the production of carbon and oxygen. The carbon and oxygen begins to pile up in the core. The star has tremendous energy requirements. As a consequence, it begins to burn through its helium very, very rapidly. It burns through it in about one million years. Again, it's about one-tenth the efficiency, so that makes sense. The helium burning occurs in the core, surrounded by a hydrogen-burning shell. This starts building up this carbon-oxygen core. Now, the star is now reachieving a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. So it will actually begin to relax away from that red supergiant phase, but it doesn't make it all the way back to the main sequence. It stops about halfway or so over and becomes what's called a blue supergiant. It's still a really gigantic star. It doesn't relax as much as we saw red giants relaxing into the horizontal branch. In fact, it relaxes a bit less. And so up on the end of the main sequence, the helium flash occurs. It reachieves thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. It becomes a blue supergiant and actually becomes a little bit brighter in the process. The rearrangement of the internal configuration when the star reaches helium core burning, when it's very massive, is a little bit different than we actually saw before for the main, lower mass main sequence stars. You'll remember in that case, they actually descended and got fainter. They collapsed a lot. In this case, they get hotter, but they don't change their, their, their size all that much. And the combination of greater heat and not as much relaxation and physical size means they actually come out brighter. So these are very, very bright stars indeed. Now eventually, after one million years, the helium is going to run out in the core. You're just basically going to burn through all the helium fuel. You've built up this immense ash pile, now almost a solar mass worth of carbon and oxygen. That carbon-oxygen core does not have a source of energy that can provide it the extra pressure it needs to hold up against gravity. And we've heard this story before. It begins to contract. As it begins to contract, it compresses and heats up. It shoves the helium burning out into a shell with the hydrogen burning in the sh shell already shoved out a little bit further. And the star actually begins to devolve again. It begins to move across the main sequence, or the HR diagram, back to the red supergiant phase because it's now out of thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. It's making more energy than it can get rid of because we've now got helium and hydrogen shell burning, and it's out of hydrostatic equilibrium because that carbon-oxygen core is collapsing. This carbon-oxygen core continues the collapse, but it's got an awful lot of mass on top of it pressing down upon it. And now here's where the story of how the evolution of low main sequence and high-mass high main sequence stars differs. High-mass stars on the main sequence, stars above four solar masses, the core can get hot enough, the carbon-oxygen core can get hot enough to ignite carbon burning. The carbon ignition temperature is roughly around 600 million degrees Kelvin at a density of 150,000 grams per cc. 
Now, at this point, I want to sort of just take a, take a little pause here and, and, and point out that we're about to give a very detailed story. And I'm going to give these details mostly for, um, how should we say, quantitative verisimilitude. It, it doesn't do well to say the core gets hot. The core gets really, really hot. It gets really, really, really hot. Oh, it gets so hot, I can't even tell you. I'm going to give you some numbers. But I don't expect you to cough up those numbers, for example, on an exam or even pay attention to those numbers, except to see that when I mean big, I'm going to quantify it. The same is true of the density. What I really want you to carry away from the story that I'm about to spool out is what the main phases of a star's life are after it reaches carbon burning, why it goes through those phases, and kind of roughly what that stage of phases is. The fine details are really going to be here mostly for giving you a sense quantitatively what's about to happen. So don't get hung up on the numbers, but get the basic storyline. So when the temperature of the carbon-oxygen core reaches 600 million degrees, it's very, very compressed. It's at 150,000 grams per cc of density. This is really tightly packed stuff. Under these conditions, carbon fusion can ignite. Carbon fusion is going to be a very, very inefficient process, but it's going to begin a very important process for the rest of the star's life. So at the end of helium burning, I've climbed up into a blue supergiant here. I begin to go out of thermal equilibrium, and I start moving to back towards the red supergiant phase. I actually am a little bit more luminous than I was when I was originally at the red supergiant phase here, and I now am getting my energy by carbon fusion in the core. It's trying its best to regain this state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. But now there's going to be some real differences in what happens, because what's going to happen now is going to happen too fast for the star to respond. Sure. The interior is getting hotter. The core is getting hotter. The surface only reflects, it has to shine by a certain luminosity. That, that represents the amount of energy pouring up from energy transported from generation in the core. The surface is responding to that excess energy by swelling up. That swelling causes it to cool and in order to be able to produce enough luminosity, it's got to have a bigger surface area. So whenever I talk about temperature here, I'm being very careful to say core temperature. I mean deep down in the interior. The surface from the outside, this is 3,000 degrees Kelvin. It's giving very few hints of the tremendous inferno in its core. So, so it's, this is just referencing like the envelope. This is what we see. Right, the, HR, or the thing to remember of that, this is a very good question, actually a very good line of question to remember. So we often forget we're talking about a star, I talk about what goes on in the interior. What the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram shows us is how the star looks from the outside to us with our telescopes watching that star evolve. Now you have to kind of imagine for a second you can watch the entire 10 million, 10 billion years of evolution of the star. The idea is the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is the outward manifestation of the inward changes. So the only way we observe the universe is the skin-deep aspects of the star. How hot is its surface, and how much energy is it pumping out, its luminosity? Hertzsprung-Russell diagram tells you its luminosity for its temperature. That's what we observe. And what we infer is what's going on deep in the interior. So the story I'm going to tell now, and this is actually, it was a very nice, I took sort of a little pater for that question, because it leads very nicely into what comes in next, is... From the HR diagram point of view, I'm not going to show you an HR diagram again in this lecture. And the reason is because the star doesn't do anything on the HR diagram once carbon fusion begins. Because everything that occurs now in the interior 
happens so fast, the outer envelope doesn't have time to respond. Remember that radiation, photons take a million years to get out of the sun. So what's going to happen now is going to occur in one millennium. Start with carbon fusion. Carbon fuses in a different way than we've seen before. It's actually now going to start the first introduction of what we call a reaction network. It fuses into a network of things, the primary product of which is magnesium-24. So in the Hertzsprung, in the periodic table of the elements, we've started out with carbon and carbon. Carbon has six protons and six neutrons, so its total weight is 12. If I fuse them together, I should get an element with 12 protons, magnesium, and a weight of 24. However, the temperature is so high that sometimes that fusion kicks a helium out. And so I produce carbon, and carbon produces neon plus a helium. It also can produce an oxygen busting out two heliums. It almost... It's almost like triple alpha, but broken into pieces. One of those alphas has gone into the oxygen. Notice that the, the number up here, which is the atomic weight, protons plus neutron, is an even multiple of four, like helium. These are often referred to as the alpha elements because they're even multiples of four, and they're formed by fusion of helium in various stages. Watch for this. We're going to see this writ large on Monday when we finish out the story. So instead of producing one form of ash, carbon produces three forms of ash. Carbon fusion produces oxygen, neon, and magnesium in its core. This is an extremely inefficient form of fuel. One of the things all these reactions do is produce a prodigious number of neutrinos. The neutrinos stream out of the sun and carry away some of the energy that the star would normally be trying to trap to make up for its pressure, to make up for its energy losses. And so since it's losing energy from neutrinos, it's got to burn even more furiously to catch enough heat to meet its requirements to maintain thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. So the star is really getting into a bind here. The amount of energy it has to generate is far exceeding the capacity of the fusion reactions available. Yeah, magnesium is a little bit more massive than two carbons put together, but not that much. The efficiency of this fuel is very low. It's like going from jet fuel to water-diluted kerosene. Right? The stuff you have to burn a tremendous amount of this to get the same amount of energy out. And this thing of neutrinos kicking in starts giving you an additional energy loss mechanism. You're losing energy at a faster rate to neutrinos. This is going to become important to us. How important? The carbon's going to run out in 1,000 years. Now, previously, we were helium burning. The helium burning lasted a million years, but carbon fusion is so inefficient because of the combined less energy per reaction plus the amount of losses from neutrinos means it only lasts 1,000 years. This gets to be fairly important to us because at the end of carbon burning, we now have an oxygen, neon, magnesium core building up after 1,000 years. Carbon burning is shoved into a shell surrounded by a shell of helium burning, surrounded by a shell of hydrogen burning, and this immense, very much not to scale, red giant envelope outside of it. At this point, the, re the fusion is going to occur. Everything that's going to happen here is going to occur so fast, the outside appearance of the star is not going to change, and it's going to be masking the tremendous turmoil going on deep in its interior. Where the star goes from here is once again determined by its mass. So we now have reached another fork in the road, and that fork is defined by the mass of the star. 
An intermediate mass star we're going to define as a star between four and eight times the mass of the sun. The exact dividing line is actually argued about. There are a lot of nuances here I'm glossing over. But we'll just take it as, as given that an eight solar mass or less star between four and eight solar masses, you will achieve carbon burning, and you will carbon burn for a thousand years. You build up an oxygen magnesium neon core, and you get carbon, helium, and hydrogen shells, just like the picture we just saw. The problem is, before you can do anything else, those unstable pulsations that tore apart an asymptotic giant branch star at the low, solar, low mass end yesterday now come into play in spades in the supergiant stars. You still got thermal pulses from the helium shell in the big star, but the big star's envelope is so big it just absorbs it. But once you get carbon burning in a shell, that's so unstable at low masses that the thermal pulses actually begin to destabilize the envelope. You sh now have core envelope separation. The envelope is shrugged off. It becomes a very massive planetary or something, or just a huge wind. The stuff just begins blowing off and ablating over time. And the, the, ejection, the envelope is ejected in a massive solar wind. And what's left behind is that oxygen neon magnesium core, which begins to collapse under its own weight. But relieved of the weight of the, of the envelope above it, it never gets hot enough to ignite the next fusion reaction in line. And so it simply collapses until it becomes degenerate, and it becomes a massive, we think roughly solar mass size, oxygen neon magnesium white dwarf. So the core goes its own way, the envelope is ejected in an immense outflowing wind, and the star basically takes itself apart before its evolution can continue. So for stars below eight solar masses, the end point of their evolution is going to be to disperse their envelope into space, and their core will form a white dwarf. If your mass is below four times the mass of the sun, you form an oxygen, carbon-oxygen white dwarf. If your mass is between four and eight times the mass of the sun, you become an oxygen neon magnesium white dwarf. And in fact, we see examples of both kinds of white dwarfs out in the galaxy. So we know these things exist. And this is where we think the oxygen neon magnesium white dwarfs come from. So this is now end of the road for the four to eight solar mass star. It simply dis disrupts itself, the core collapses, the envelope separates, and the star is done. It's no longer a star. All we're left with is this massive remnant called the oxygen neon magnesium white dwarf. If, on the other hand, your mass is in excess of eight solar masses, life gets interesting. At the onset of carbon burning, as I've said before, the evolution of the star is going to become extremely rapid, so rapid that the envelope is no longer going to be able to respond. Everything else that occurs, it looks like just a red or a blue supergiant kind of tootling in its place on the HR diagram, not doing a whole lot. We're not going to see any signs of the tremendous turmoil that's going on. Now, there is an exception to this. And the exception to this is that at this phase, remember, the supergiants are kind of big and fluffy. Their atmospheres are barely held onto. And so you can, in fact, have massive stellar winds begin to kick in at this phase, which will slowly but surely erode the star away. The question now becomes, can the star shed enough mass to hold off some of the stages awaiting it or not? And we don't have a good answer for what the dividing line is between those two. We see examples out in the universe of very, very massive stars that are very clearly losing a lot of their mass, but not enough mass to forestall the events that I'm about to describe. But maybe they can. It's just we're really uncertain. It's one of the frontier areas of the astrophysics. All right, with that proviso, let's begin. 
The oxygen, neon, magnesium core contracts and heats. When its core temperature reaches 1.5 billion degrees Kelvin at a density of 10 to the 7 grams per cc. Remember that water has a density of 1 gram per cc. So this is a density of a 10 million times the density of water. If that occurs when the temperature is 1.5 billion degrees Kelvin, we can ignite neon burning. Neon, a nucleus with 10 protons and 10 neutrons, begins to fuse. But now I'm not even going to bother showing you the nuclear reactions, because it would be a nuclear reaction network I'd have to fill both screens with. Things become much more complicated when you're much hotter. Fusion works in, in, in amazing ways, and you have to do a very detailed calculation. This reaction network makes oxygen, magnesium, and other elements. All of these reactions tap energy. They tap nuclear binding energy. They produce energy through E equals mc squared. But it does so tremendously inefficiently. So inefficiently, in fact, that it's going to burn through it very rapidly. And it produces lots and lots of neutrinos. In fact, at this stage, when you reach neon burning, the total luminosity of the star in neutrinos exceeds the luminosity in photons from the star. So the loss mechanism, the leakiness of this mechanism to energy, is producing more loss than it's getting gain. And so it has to burn at an even more furious rate at very high temperatures to make up for its luminosity needs. Remember, the luminosity needs are absolutely relentless. The star must try to maintain a state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. To do so, it must tap new fusion sources at higher temperatures and densities. These fusion sources are vastly inefficient and therefore must run extremely rapidly. So the star started out on the main sequence burning jet fuel, high test military jet fuel, and now it's down to the point where it's a tank of water with a drop of gasoline in it. It's really weak stuff. Neon, nearly a solar mass of neon, is burned out in the course of a few years. So this goes extremely fast. Neon produces large amounts of oxygen, magnesium, and others. Those products, it's not hot enough for them to fuse. They pile up in the cores and ash. The ash pile eventually increases to the point that it shoves the neon burning zone out into a shell. The core becomes unstable against its own weight because it doesn't have an internal source to make up for its pressure, and it begins to fall under gravity. We've seen this story before. When the neon runs out, the core now, which contains a complex mixture, cocktail, of nuclear fusion burning products, begins to contract and heat up. When the temperature reaches 2.1 billion degrees Kelvin at a density of a few tens of millions of grams per cc, oxygen burning begins to ignite. Oxygen plus oxygen begins to go into a tremendously complex nuclear reaction network that produces silicon, sulfur, Phosphorus, P, where's P? Oops, no, silicon. Oh, it's somewhere up in there. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Silicon, phosphorus, and sulfur, these three guys down in here, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But basically, it produces stuff we're filling in, a little bit of sodium because out of the sun. So now we're filling in a portion of the upper part of the periodic table of the elements. I missed that there for a second. The neutrino losses from this are absolutely immense. It produces 100,000 neutrinos for every photon. And, and actually, that's not quite the right way of putting it, but the best way of putting it is for every erg of photon energy that's produced, it makes 100,000 ergs of neutrinos, which just stream out of the star and carry that energy off. So now you're basically dealing with 
trying to run your, your star on a leaky fuel tank. And so you've got to really press the pedal all the way to the floor. The end product of this is primarily to produce silicon. You build a very, very heavy silicon core. It does this in one year. So we burn through a solar mass of oxygen in one calendar year, turning it into silicon. The stuff is leaky as hell. It's burning through this stuff so fast you can't even believe it. And yet that's just barely able to make the balance between the energy needs of the star and the maintenance of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. So the star is getting more and more desperate as a way of sort of anthropomorphizing this. It's running out of stuff. It needs the next fuel. The next fuel is inefficient, so it's got to burn more of it faster. And to do so, it's putting itself into a really nasty configuration. The core has now got temperatures of billions of degrees, densities of tens of millions of grams per cc. After the year is done, the oxygen runs out, and you've built up a huge core of silicon. Almost like I say, all together now, the silicon builds up, shoulders the oxygen burning out into a shell, the core destabilizes, it doesn't have enough pressure to be able to hold itself up against gravity, and it starts to collapse. As it collapses, it heats, as it heats, it drives the fusion faster, but now the envelope of the star is not even able to respond because things are moving so fast. When the temperature reaches 3.5 billion degrees Kelvin at a density of 100 million grams per cc, we ignite silicon burning. At these temperatures, the silicon nuclei don't so much fuse as they literally melt into a sea of helium, protons, and neutrons. At temperatures of 3.5 billion degrees at extremely high density. Any other nuclei that happen to be running around start soaking up these alphas and protons and neutrons and start sucking it down, growing heavier and heavier and heavier nuclei. So we start out as silicon, and we start building things like phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, argon, potassium, calcium, scandium, titanium, vanadium, chromium, manganese, iron, and cobalt. And then it stops. And the reason it stops is because the end of the nuclear reaction network is the iron-cobalt-nickel group there, that little group seven there at the top. Iron, cobalt, and nickel have a very special property. They're the most tightly bound atomic nuclei. You can make energy from them because their mass is just a little tiny bit smaller than the stuff you're making it out of. And so you build up this nickel-iron core. This process will last for one day. You burn through the sun's mass of silicon in one day. The fuel is so inefficient, you've basically gone from high-test jet fuel in the main sequence to now trying to burn yak butter, right? You're down to the, the, the least efficient fuel you can possibly imagine. The end product of this is to burn up to iron and nickel. Now, so far, we've seen a progression. You burn the fuel that's giving you the best fusion yield at that temperature, fusing into heavier elements, those heavier elements are, in fact, a little bit lighter than the sum of the products that you use to make them by fusion, so you get a little bit, a tiny bit of energy out of E equals mc squared. But now we've got a problem. We're going to run into an impasse. Fusion of light nuclei releases nuclear binding energy. That's another way of putting it, that the nucleus of helium has less mass than four protons by themselves. As each successive element is built up from hydrogen, 
helium, lithium, beryllium, up through carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, up through magnesium, sulfur, silicon, all the way up to iron, that holds true. There's more and more binding energy, therefore there's more and more ability to grab hold of things. But you're stuffing more and more protons into that nucleus, and their mutual positive charges are pushing really hard to pull that nucleus apart, fighting with the strong nuclear force, which mediated by those neutrons, is trying to hold that nucleus together. Once you get up to iron, cobalt, and nickel, the game rules change. Because now there's so many charges in the nucleus, the nucleus becomes less bound when it becomes more massive because there's more protons. The neutrons, if you will, have to work harder to hold it together. And the nuclei, even though they're heavier, start getting a little fluffier in a nuclear energy sense. Their binding goes down. So this is the top of the hill. Iron is the most bound nucleus, or actually more precisely, the iron cobalt nickel group here. Fusion of elements that are lighter than, than iron have less, have more mass, the, the, the input products have more mass than the output. That little mass difference e equals mc squared. If I tried to fuse two elements heavier than iron, they would produce a less bound nucleus. To do that, the nucleus that's produced is actually more massive than the input products. So I've got to make up that mass difference by taking energy from the system. So everything up to this point has resulted in a product which is lighter than what it was made from, and therefore I can get energy out. After iron, your product is heavier than what goes in, which means you've got to add energy to make that fusion run at all, which means it ain't a gonna happen. So a fusion for elements lighter than iron release energy. They have less mass and therefore can release E equals mc squared energy. Fusion for elements heavier than iron, which is the rest of the periodic table up here on the wall, absorb energy. They suck energy out of your system. It's no longer fuel. Once an iron core forms, the fusion fuel is gone. There's nothing left for that star to tap. There's no future heavier fusion mechanism it can tap because there's no energy to be gotten from it. This is the nuclear impasse. This is where the star no longer has anywhere to turn. So at the end of the silicon burning phase, after one day of silicon burning, the interior of the star is going to look something like this. This core is approximately the radius of the Earth and approximately the mass of the Sun. A little close, maybe about 1.2, pushing towards 1.4 times the mass of the Sun. It's an inert core of the ashes of the silicon burning process, which is this iron nickel complex down here, which is the end point of that silicon nuclear burning reaction. Outside of that nuclear iron nickel core is a silicon burning shell. Outside of the silicon burning shell is an oxygen burning shell. Outside of oxygen burning is neon. Outside of neon, carbon. Outside of carbon, still helium hanging in there. And at the very end, as it has been since day one of the main sequence, there's hydrogen burning, but now just hanging in there by its fingernails in a little tiny shell. All of these nuclear burning shells combined can just barely make up the energy needs of the star at this point. It's still in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, but this building iron nickel core is now giving you a problem. This whole thing is about, this inner core is about the size of the Earth. The envelope is five astronomical units out towards the orbit of Jupiter. 
We are now at the end of the road. At the end of the day, the silicon burning occurs. The star has built up an immense inert iron core and a series of nested nuclear burning shells. Finally, the mass of that iron core builds up to the point that its mass exceeds somewhere between 1.2 and 2 times the mass of the sun of iron, nickel. When that occurs, the iron core's internal pressure, this thing is at temperatures of four, three, four billion degrees Kelvin. That's a huge amount of pressure, but it's not enough. It's not enough for it to balance pressure against gravity. So it's held itself in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium up to this point, but now hydrostatic equilibrium is lost, gravity begins to win, the core begins to contract. We've seen this story before. The core contracts, it heats up. But this time, it's different. This collapse is final, and it is catastrophic. And we'll continue it on Monday.